Green Dreamer is supported by our listener patrons. To support the show starting at $2 per month, you can head to greendreamer.com support to learn more. This episode is also supported by our sponsor, Osea Malibu, the original plant-based results-driven skincare line. I was really excited to share this with you because I've actually been using Osea's skincare myself for the past few years, and I love it. The Hyaluronic C Serum specifically has been helping to keep my skin hydrated in this dry climate in California. To get $10 off your first purchase of $50 or more, you can head to oseamalibu.com slash greendreamer, and the discount will automatically be applied when you check out. Again, that's oseamalibu.com slash greendreamer. The vast majority of people, I think they have more faith in the advice and the recommendations that are given by the government than they really should. When I started to realize the extent of the influence that corporate giants have over food policy, nutritional recommendations, food guidelines, and things like that, it made me feel very naive. That was Stephen Tan, a partner at the environmental law firm Cascadia Law Group, where his practice focuses on environmental litigation. As we're trying to figure out how we can bring about more systemic change to our modern society, Stephen will be offering important insights to the role of litigation in shaping and influencing environmental policy, why we need to question the credibility of conventional authorities, such as governmental agencies, for things such as food and nutrition guidance lines and more. Green Dreamer, if you're ready, take a deep breath and let's dive in. Hey, it's Kamea Shane and this is Green Dreamer, a podcast exploring our paths to ecological balance, intersectional sustainability, and true abundance and wellness for all. If you haven't already, make sure to hit subscribe and together let's learn what it takes to thrive in every sense of the word. Since I can remember, I was uh, planning to be a biologist. I focused on science uh, in high school. I studied biology and environmental science in college. So I had always planned on being a biologist. I was mostly interested in environmental biology and ecology, not less interested in biology on a micro level, molecular and cell biology. And so the plan was to become a field scientist or a naturalist. During my education, though, I began to realize the importance of public policy as it relates to the environment and ecosystems. And I started to realize that the people who uh, really shape how scientific knowledge is developed aren't scientists. They are policy people, by and large. So I decided to attend law school and uh, to become an environmental lawyer. So in order for environmental litigation to happen, we have to first have a set of environmental laws established to base the legal actions on. As an overview, how strong do you think our existing environmental laws are today in the United States? And in which areas are they already really strong and which and in which other areas do we need more foundational work on? Well, it's a it's a great question. And I think in a lot of ways, we can be very proud of our heritage and our legacy on environmental law and regulation. Uh, This is the first country that passed an an Endangered Species Act. It's the first law, uh, first country, I'm sorry, that passed Clean Air Act and a Clean Water Act. Those are all laws from the 1970s. And those uh, laws have been replicated in some form by most developed nations uh, and even in some developing nations as well. So it started here. 
But your question about how strong those laws are has a lot more to do with how those laws are enforced and to what degree there are regulations that, that put in place requirements that allow the purpose of the laws to be carried out. And unfortunately, I think that's where we have kind of fallen short. You know, there have been uh, certainly a lot of strides towards gaining knowledge about what healthy ecosystems and a, and a healthy life environment for people uh, should be. But, uh, you know, depending on the administration in power and depending on the competence and the willingness of regulatory agencies, enforcement's the bigger problem. So the laws are there. It's more so about, uh, I guess, the political climate and the actions that the administration chooses to take in terms of how harsh they are in enforcing these regulations. I would say the laws are there with respect to things, you know, discrete environmental issues like endangered species, like clean air, like clean water. Uh, they aren't there and probably can't be there with regard to other issues related to the environment, like, you know, whether our agricultural and, and food system, whether our policies that guide those systems, uh, whether they foster a healthy environment for us. Those are harder laws to pass, of course. You know, uh, laws are typically based on a particular subject matter, you know, whether it's rare species or the air we breathe or the water we drink, etc. I don't want to overstate how effective those laws are. The laws are there, and I think if they had good enforcement, we would certainly be better off than we currently are. Right. Uh, but there's a whole range of oh issues that relate to environmental quality, to resource conservation, to protection of natural ecosystems that don't exist, that in an ideal world, in my ideal world, they would exist. But they're more difficult because they do relate to, you know, issues about how we live. Mm -hmm. And uh, it, those are those are tougher to regulate. I know you've worked on some lawsuits challenging the Trump administration, which has been known for its harsh stance in terms of the environment, rolling back regulations, lowering standards. Um, I believe they tried to undo some of what the Endangered Species Act uh, has been protecting in terms of our endangered species. And they've also been undoing a lot of the protection we've given to various wild spaces. Just so we can get a glimpse into what your work looks like in practice, what was one of the most profound cases you worked on in this area? What happened leading up to the lawsuit and what was the result? The one that comes to mind, because it's pretty recent, is the work that I've been doing you know, less through my law practice and more as a, a board member uh, for the National Audubon Society in challenging oil development in Alaska. And so uh, that has been, of course, an effort that's been ongoing since the 80s. And it's still uncertain what's going to happen up there. But uh, there have been a series of lawsuits, some of which Audubon's been involved, with, involved in, along with other environmental organizations that have really helped put the brakes at least so far on oil development in the uh, wildlife refuge up in Alaska, in the coastal plain, and also offshore in Alaska. It's an example of how environmental activism and environmental litigation can help prevent what I consider to be abuses and really bad decision making that really doesn't serve us long term. Now, are these lawsuits based on uh, these actions potentially going against the interests of what the Endangered Species Act is saying? Or what is the foundation for this lawsuit? 
Well, a lot of these lawsuits are based on uh, environmental laws, uh, whether it's the Endangered Species Act, whether it is the requirement under what's called the National Environmental Policy Act to measure, evaluate, and report on potential environmental impacts of federal actions. You know, sometimes governments try to jump the gun on doing things without evaluating those impacts, which are required. That evaluation is required under federal law. So the, the lawsuits can be based on, for instance, the failure to follow those procedural requirements. A lot of your work has been focused on food policy. So what do we need to know about our current food policies and what do they mean for our consumer safety and public health? Well, this is where I focused a lot of my time as a practicing lawyer, as a board member, and as a, an advocate in the nonprofit community. You know, I began to realize in the course of being an environmental lawyer, but also in the course of learning more about individual health and wellness and public health, that there is a, a very strong overlap, intersection between environmental quality, resource conservation, public health, individual health. All those things intersect in ways that most people don't think about. And unfortunately, you know, we have allowed our agricultural and food policy to go largely unregulated and to be dominated by, you know, major industrial companies. So when you hear the term industrial agriculture, that's really the basis of our food system. Uh, That has enormous negative impacts on environmental health, the health of ecosystems. It has enormous detrimental impacts on public health, on individual health. And unfortunately, we have allowed those industrial interests to really dominate the food policy and agricultural policy landscape, and even to define nutritional standards. You know, So the guidance that the federal government gives to people on what is a supposedly healthy way to live and eat, uh, largely driven by corporate and industrial interests, rather than what I think it ought to be based on, which is you know, good science and what actually serves the interests of public health and individual health. And, and that's a function of the way that we allow commercial interests to really dominate our economy. These companies are doing what they're meant to do, which is to succeed and to make money and to get bigger, generate income for their shareholders. So it, it's, it's hard to challenge them on that level. They are successful companies. Unfortunately, the consequences of their success are uh, in many, many ways uh, detrimental to our quality of life. We, you know, when we look at the amount of land and the amount of resources that we devote to food production here and the way we allow it to happen, uh, having these huge detrimental impacts on environmental health and public health, you know, that's very unfortunate. It's something we don't think about very much. And unfortunately, that type of policy and, and the clout that we have allowed these corporate food giants uh, to develop, we have now exported that way of thinking and that way of eating and that way of food production to countries around the world. And they're now suffering the same consequences that our country has by allowing that to occur. Wow. So basically, these corporate food giants have been shaping our food policies behind the scenes, and they've also been shaping, um, I guess, nutritional guidelines, which then shapes consumer desires, consumer purchases uh, that then continue to, I guess, support 
their companies as well. So it all goes back to whatever works best or works in their favor. You just put it uh, better than I did. Uh, you, you summarized that very, very well. Yes, that's exactly what's happened. Moving on, I'd love to talk a little more about GMOs. So you, co- you co-authored a comprehensive paper about genetically engineered foods in which you discussed the case for why GE foods should require mandatory testing. You said, Our decisions about the foods we purchase and consume are among the most consequential we make. Collectively, these decisions have... Um, have always had significant effects on the health of the environment, our use of natural resources, the health and trajectory of our national economy, the vitality of our agricultural communities, and even our culture. In the case of GE foods, these impacts have been overwhelmingly negative. However, the debate over GE foods has thus far revolved around a different issue, whether these foods have any detrimental effects on human health. Because genetic engineering is not inherently dangerous, and because no credible credible evidence has emerged to date that any GE food available on the commercial market has caused harmful health effects in humans, opponents of mandatory labeling argue that concerns raised about GE foods are much ado about nothing, end quote. This really struck me personally because when I learned about GE foods in my um, environmental studies courses back in university, this is exactly the main takeaway that I got out of it is that there are a lot of uncertainties, but at present, we don't know for sure that they're unsafe or necessarily toxic for people to consume. And therefore, the answer for whether GMOs are good or bad is really up in the air. Can you talk more about what the risks with GE foods are and how they've known to have impacted other things uh, besides the direct health of consumers? Yeah, the the article I wrote was really uh, the position I was taking or arguing for was that labeling shouldn't be precluded by the First Amendment, uh, our right to free speech. And it should be required because there are important consequences we should consider, at least in terms of the direction that genetic engineering has taken with our food supply. And it's been frustrating because, again, most most of the talk has been around, is it safe? Is it healthy? You know, the evidence on that is not there, that there is any inherent danger. You know, I, I, I do think it is possible to produce dangerous food through genetic engineering, but the fact of genetic engineering does not make a food necessarily unsafe. But that issue has dominated the conversation, even though it's not really an issue. What's ignored, again, is, well, what are the other consequences of allowing those foods to be produced Without regulation, without labeling, without consumers knowing, you know, what my article tries to point out is there are environmental consequences. I'll cover some of those. Again, the proponents of genetic engineering, we're talking about genetically engineered seed. When genetic engineering was first developed, the the promise was that it was going to improve yields. It was going to create drought-tolerant plants. It was, you know, these are all consumer-oriented, ecosystem-oriented goals, or was going to improve flavor, or was going to improve shelf life, things like that, that would actually serve the consumer. Well, it's taken a very different direction than that. You know, uh, the genetic engineering that has been applied to foods in our food system, uh, in our food supply, has almost exclusively been herbicide and pesticide resistance, meaning you insert a gene in a seed that allows you to then douse your fields with an herbicide to kill everything but that plant. 
and as you can imagine, these herbicides and pesticides are part of the environmental consequences of industrial agriculture. And these seeds are produced by companies, you know, these agricultural giants. And so we are centralizing the power over our food supply in these giant corporations uh, that, that dominate the food supply. So that that's one of the primary things that I think people should recognize is that what started out as a good goal, and, and I'm not, we should all recognize there are still efforts out there being made to use genetic engineering for consumer benefit, right? So I'm not going to pretend that those efforts don't exist. But when you allow corporate interests to take over, I mean, think about this. These seed companies, they benefit by selling the seed. They benefit by producing and selling the herbicides and pesticides that go along with this seed. You know, it, it is a way of increasing their market influence uh, and to dominate the seed market, which they have accomplished very successfully. So it, it's not surprising that they've gravitated towards that application of genetic engineering. It serves their bottom line. So that, that's, that's what we've allowed to happen. It's, there's nothing nefarious about it. Again, it's, it, it's just we've allowed that to happen without people really understanding what the consequences of it are. And then on to, you know, economic consequences as well, which we've touched on a little bit already, which is you're now concentrating the seed market in these giant companies. You know, it used to be seeds were something that were really community resources. They were regionally focused. They were, there were seeds that were suited to a particular climate or ecosystem that were saved by farmers and used over the years and developed, hybridized through natural means to produce plants that were suited to the particular climate uh, and area and uh, rainfall of a, of a particular region. Well, these, these farmers are now resorting to genetic, uh, genetically modified seed because that's what's on the market. And so it, it's just uh, the, the consequences of that in terms of seed variety, seed supply, has been very significant. That is uh, something we ought to watch out for. A lot of the environmental catastrophes that have occurred have been because we have allowed farmers to to, to dominate, uh, or a single variety, for instance, of potatoes to dominate production. That's what happened in the Irish potato famine. When you don't work with nature, nature thrives on variety uh, and relationships between plants and animals, and you, you instead create a monoculture in which one species is grown to the exclusion of all others, that is not a natural system. And we've seen, and history has shown, that uh, there are some sometimes catastrophic results from that. So it really sounds like these food giants, they're selling seed varieties or they're pushing, they're promoting this one way of doing agriculture, which is primarily monocultures, which creates a second set of issues. And then they're creating the solution to that issue and selling those products that are supposed to solve those issues. That then creates another set of problems. So for example, monoculture, as we know, is really uh, degenerative for soils. So then farmers will have to buy more inputs for buying fertilizers as well. So it's like they, they feel the constant need to rely on buying additional inputs from outside rather than working with the farm ecosystem itself. That's exactly right. So we have abandoned you know, these traditional methods of farming, which was you know, rotational crops, 
nitrogen inputs through uh, through off-season cover. You know, things like that that have been proven to be very sustainable and very promoting of sustainable agriculture, those can't be applied when you're talking about monocultures, monocrops. And so uh, we, we've abandoned that kind of traditional knowledge uh, that has existed around the world in favor of this very industrial approach where we feel like we have complete control over this ecosystem, which is a monocrop. But when we realize what has to go into that to sustain it, like you say, you're relying on outside inputs and you're relying on a very unnatural system, you know, then it's not surprising when you think about it that way that it has these these impacts, these negative impacts on uh, on the environment. So if we have the know-how to do things better through more regenerative practices that bring back more biodiversity onto our farmlands, and if consumers are sharing desires for higher quality, safe, and healthier foods, why do we seem stuck where we are? And why haven't we been able to change our agricultural policies to then incentivize change across the whole food system? Boy, that's a complicated question. (laughs) Um, I I think it starts with awareness. I think a lot of what uh, you're very aware of and what I'm very aware of is really unknown to the vast majority of consumers. You know, I, I think in maybe in earth circles and in mine, it is better known, but to the vast majority of people in this country, they are just unaware and therefore unconcerned about how their food is produced. And I, th- I think they have more faith in the advice and the recommendations that are given by the government than they really should. When I started to realize the extent of the influence that corporate giants have over food policy, nutritional recommendations, food guidelines, and things like that, it made me feel very naive because it is, uh, you know, you have this assumption that these agencies are acting in, in the interest of consumers, in the interest of citizens. And as it turns out, well, these agencies are, are composed of people, and a lot of these people come from industry, and it's just like, you know, pick your agency, uh, the Department of Energy, where you've got industry and government, and there's this kind of revolving door where people go back and forth, and you've got these huge lobbying impacts, right? The, the, the influence of lobbyists on, on these agencies, it really can't be overstated. So I think that's part of it, is that there is this faith and this belief that what we're being told in terms of uh, how our food is produced uh, and what we should be eating and what's healthy to eat, that that is all scientifically based when in large part it is not. And like I said, I think it's a lar- in large part just a general unawareness and, and lack of concern about it. I just don't think for as something as crucial as food, you know, something we all do, <laughs> something we all have to do to survive. It it is uh, very surprising to me that people don't care about it more, the quality of it and the impacts of it, not just on ourselves, which, you know, uh, we can talk about that as well. That that is a a huge impact as well, negative impact that we're seeing in terms of our public health crisis and rates of obesity and rates of disease. On the other hand, I also sympathize. I mean, unless you're willing to spend the time and dig deep on this, it's confusing. And, uh, you know, when I say there are interests out there trying to preserve this, what I think is a, con- uh, a dysfunctional way of producing food, one of the ways in which they preserve that status quo is to obfuscate, right? And, and have their own studies that 
that are not very well designed that tend to show things that are contrary to uh, mainstream scientific knowledge. Uh, and so consumers are confused because on the one hand, they hear something's good. On the other hand, they hear it's not. And so a lot of people, I think, just decide I'm going to they, they throw up their hands at it. It's 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 too confusing and it, they don't know who to believe. And so for something as critical as food, you know, a, a major driver of our health, a major driver driver of our the quality of our environment, the health of our ecosystems, the the quality of our life. You know, a lot of people go through life not really thinking about those consequences because the information they're getting is very confusing. I think, I mean, I'm always talking to people like you who are way more knowledgeable than I am. So I, I feel like the public awareness, I have a skewed perception of where we're at in terms of our public awareness, because I feel like mm -hmm. people around me are all talking about it already. But we do have to keep in mind that um, we have ways to go in terms of continuing to spread this information and to, I guess, teach people to think critically, to not trust all of these research studies, because they may not, it depends on where they come from as well. And certainly, we need to get money out of politics and vote in people that are not taking money from special interests. That's right. I mean, I think it's it's easy to think that people do know because I am sure in the circles that you that you are in professionally and socially, there is more awareness than in the general public. But, you know, it's it's remarkable to me that even people who do know something about what we've spent our time talking about, it doesn't necessarily translate to good decision making, you know. And so I, a, a lot of people are just Here's the other thing that, that we need to recognize, which is one of the reasons that these food giants have succeeded is that they have tapped into what it is that we have been evolved to look for in our food. So we're talking about calorie-dense, sweet, salty, fatty food, right? There's a reason that we have a preference for foods like that. That is our evolutionary history, you know, until very, very recent times. Those are things that humans, just like all animals, had to spend a lot of their time looking for. And so we developed a taste for those things. Well, when we're talking about food that is, you know, kind of predominates our, our food landscape in this country, it is those foods that are calorically dense, sweet, salty, and fatty. And again, who produces those foods? Uh, it's these industrial corporate interests that are profiting from our, from our buying those foods, which have been de been designed to appeal to us. It's an uphill battle because there is a lack of awareness. There's a there's a an inability to act even among those who are aware, and we're fighting against our natural tendency to gravitate towards those types of foods that have been designed to to appeal to the to, to the things that we're looking for in our food, really, uh, you know, on a very biological level. We're really going against strong currents here. And I mean, as we look ahead, we definitely have lots to work on on the environmental front so that we can address our ecological crises and public health crises um, at a systemic national and global level. Policy usually has to do with helping us achieve a future goal, whereas laws are put into place as a legal framework to abide by right now. How do environmental policies impact environmental laws and vice versa? And how much should we be focusing on environmental policy versus litigation in order to achieve our goals? Well, I think litigation is, uh, is an essential but ultimately a poor way to define policy. 
I do environmental litigation. That is my profession. It is what I have done for over a decade now in my current practice. It's something that you resort to because there's no better alternative. And so uh, the right way to do policy, in my mind, is based on science. It's based on objective fact. That's hard to achieve because uh, how do you eliminate corporate interests, special interests from that process? It's almost an impossible thing to do. What needs to happen is a an awareness that that is happening and then more of an effort to define policy, environmental policy, health policy, uh, public health policy on good information. And uh, we have been you know, unwilling or unable to do that to this point. So in the bigger picture, what do you think we need to be able to address these big picture issues? Well, I, I do think people should feel the, the need to be more informed. I mean, look around. Uh, what we are doing to our planet, what we are doing to ourselves, you know, again, relating to public health, uh, we're making bad decisions. We are so focused on, at least on the environmental side, you know, something we haven't talked about specifically, but climate change, we're so focused on what can we do technologically to fix a problem we have solved, which is a, you know, a, a critical part of the solution. But we are much more inclined to look at fixes rather than prevention. And so I think that a lot more effort, you know, going back to, to public health needs to be focused on how we shape our, even our, our public health and our uh, medical system. So for instance, this focus so much on cure. Doctors are, in this country are really trained to be solvers of problems that have already happened, right? instead of advisors to their patients on how to avoid those problems from happening in the first place. And I think that's that concept is also the problem with environmental quality, right? We are too willing to allow a problem to happen and then spend all our resources trying to fix that problem rather than to recognize a problem will happen or is happening now and how do we put you know, whether there are rules, whether there are regulations, whether there are policies in place to prevent those problems from ever occurring or from getting worse. It's one of those things that I think, unfortunately, is just part of our, it's part of human nature to not think that long term and to, to be too willing to allow problems to happen, even when we know they're going to, uh, and then have faith that somehow we're going to solve them rather than from preventing them in the first place. I also feel like we're more willing to pay once we have uh, problems arise as opposed to paying to prevent something that we don't even feel the consequences of yet or that we can't feel the impacts of yet. And therefore, like uh, industries that focus on solving people's problems are more profitable than industries that help people to prevent issues in the first place. Absolutely right. I, you know, the best example of that is look at our medical system. We have cutting edge medical care in this country, all focused on medical intervention once a catastrophic problem has happened, right? <laughs> Cancer surgery, heart surgery, things like that. When you compare the amount of resources devoted towards that cutting edge care, which is critical and I, you know, and we should encourage it. But when you look at the disproportionate amount of resources devoted towards that kind of technology training versus, well, how is it that we can avoid heart disease and cancer 
metabolic problems driven by obesity in the first place. And it's, you know, it's just, again, not profitable, I guess, is part of the problem to, um, to devote those resources. It's also not as heroic, right? I mean, I think that's part of the problem as well. What surgeons do is heroic. You know, any, anyone who saves somebody's life from a problem that has uh, occurred is a hero. Whereas it's, it's not quite as, uh, spectacular. We don't, we don't attach that much focus on, well, people that have, a, that have helped others avoid those problems in the first place. That's not news. You know, it's, it's just not, uh, it's not as dramatic. And so it's, uh, it, it's one of those things where I think we've just allowed that system to develop. Uh, it, it, and the, the parallels between that principle, that concept in public health and in medical care are very much similar to how we have failed to address and how we are now trying to fix our environmental problems. Well, to close, what are some things that you think we can do as individuals to support a more preventive system going forward? I'm a big believer in human beings need to, needing to recognize that uh, we are part of the ecosystem. I, I think it's very easy because of the ability we have to modify our environment to put ourselves at the top of the pyramid of life, for lack of a better term, and to assume that uh, because we are the smartest beings that, that exist and because we have the greatest potential or ability to, to modify the environment, that we have complete control over this planet, uh, complete control over our lives without and the danger in thinking that way is that you remove yourself from the natural world. There are many, many examples of that not being a wise way to proceed, right? I, I think there is a lot of wisdom in recognizing that what we do, how we live, the more it is aligned with the way this planet operates, the more it is aligned with our place in the ecosystem. If, if we allowed that concept to aid our decision making, I think we'd go a long way towards solving or better yet preventing a lot of the problems that we're creating for ourselves. I, I do think there is some hope here. There, are, there is increasing awareness of, you know, humans not being as special as we thought, that animals have capacity for empathy, have a higher level of intelligence, have social bonds that we didn't know existed before, that even plants are, are far more sophisticated and are in, in many ways have a culture, have a uh, ability to communicate with one another. I think the more that we do to elevate ourselves over other living beings, over other living systems, as if they're separate, the more we harm ourselves, the more we recognize that, you know, we're not that different and we should find our place on this planet or we'll find our place among other animal and plant species because that's the way this planet has evolved to operate, the better off we'll be. Before we go into our final five, a quick update here on our Green Dreamer planners. There was some delay, which I should have predicted, but it's coming along and it probably will launch within the first two weeks of December, hopefully just in time for the holidays. So come sign up to our weekly digest newsletter at greendreamer.com to stay posted on the specifics. Some things to note here, though, in the meantime, they're going to feature our major environmental awareness dates. There are going to be two spreads dedicated to each week so you can 
can plan, dream, and reflect openly and freely. Uh, they're going to be inspirational quotes from some of our past guests sprinkled throughout, as well as goal-setting guides and gratitude lists. And for the technical details, they're currently being printed and made locally to me in Southern California using 100% recycled paper. More updates soon at greendreamer.com slash planners. But for now, to our final five. Let's power through. What's an uplifting social media account or publication you follow or a book that's been really profound for you? You know, in terms of a book that I have read, there is one that uh, it's pretty new. It's called The Overstory by Richard Powers. And it actually touches on what I was just referring to, which is the awareness of other living beings in that, in this case, it's trees. This is a novel, but it's largely based on the uh, scientific knowledge out there about the interrelatedness of trees, their ability to communicate to each other, uh, their importance to the environment, etc. I'm I'm very encouraged that that book has gotten a lot of publicity, that the concepts of it are kind of hitting the mainstream. I think science has known about this for a while, but now the fact that it's showing up in fiction tells me that... um, you know, people are, at least some people, are willing to read about the uh, these concepts, these scientific concepts, and recognize that, you know, these other life forms are, uh, are very important, and they're far more sophisticated than we realized, mm-hmm. uh, and that we need to find our place in that system. So I think it's, uh, it's a book that I would recommend, but it's also very much in line with what we've talked about today. What do you tell yourself to stay positive and inspired? You know, it, it, it is hard to, when, when you do what I do for a living and you live with um, the reality of environmental problems and the, the things that we are doing to ourselves and our planet, it's uh, difficult sometimes not to feel very discouraged. How do I feel uh, inspired about it? It's really the hope that our species can come around uh, and adopt a way of thinking that is self-serving. Right. I mean, I think what's ironic about it is a lot of the decisions we've made are really not they're not good for us. They're not good for the the world we live in. They're not good for our our uh, public health. They're not good for the communities we live in. And, um, you know, we are just like all living beings, you know, at, at heart, we are self-serving individuals. I think it's recognizing or getting people to recognize that by doing these things that promote good environmental health, good public health, wellness, etc. We're serving ourselves, we're serving our families, we're serving our communities. And um, instead of doing things that are doing harm to those things, uh, we can do a lot individually and we can do a lot in terms of the influence we have as, as voters and as advocates to turn that around and, and start encouraging behavior and start committing behavior, doing things ourselves that are, you know, at their heart, they're very... Uh, they're very self-serving, but they're also serving of the things that we should want as communities uh, and, and as a species on this planet. I always say, too, that whether we want to be selfish or selfless, it's really almost two and the same in terms of what we need to do for the environment. I think you are absolutely right about that. You know, it, it, it is those are not uh, those are not opposite ends of the spectrum. You know, they, in large part, if we were truly selfish, especially if you have children, or, or young people in your life that you care about or care about our species a hundred years from now, uh, those are those are all, I agree with you, those are all <laughs> selfish 
issues as well, right? We can look at it through that lens and we should be looking to promote the ability of, of those people um, to, to, to live a good life. What's one thing you're working on right now for your health? It's something that a lot of people are, are turning to, which is a, uh, a meditation practice. Setting aside some time during the day to try to live in the present, because as a species, we are plagued with constantly thinking about the future or constantly thinking about the past, and uh, that doesn't necessarily suit us well either. I think it's one of the benefits that uh, other uh, animal species have that we don't is that they, they, they are not programmed the way that we do to constantly think forward and backward. And our tendency to do that as humans, I think, is, uh, you know, it's pretty detrimental. Of course, we have to do it. It's, it's actually one of the reasons that we have succeeded as a species is we can look into the future. We can learn lessons from the past. But there's also a tremendous benefit from uh, taking some time to live in the presence, uh, in, in the present and uh, to, to gain some wisdom from doing that. Mm. What are you working on right now to elevate your positive impact for our planet the main thing I do is, you know, when people are willing to listen to me, <laughs> I will talk about the issues that we've talked about today. Uh, I devote a lot of my time to nonprofit organizations, you know, primarily environmental organizations, but also uh, public health uh, organizations, educational organizations. Uh, these are issues I care about a lot. And so it's how I spend a lot of my kind of non-working time is doing work for, for those organizations, primarily serving on boards and as an advisor to help those organizations succeed because they are doing very critical work to serve us. And what makes you most hopeful for our planet at the moment? You know, honestly, I think the one thing that, that I, I look at and I'm very gratified about is youth today. You know, I, I know young people today in their 20s or college graduates, they're asking questions about uh, prospective employers, you know, what their values are, mm. right? Uh, that, that I don't think people of my generation ever asked. A job was a job. And, you know, you might have your values, but the values of your organization were just not something that were one of the factors in deciding where you wanted to work. When you think about an issue like climate change, uh, who's leading the charge on that? Right. It is uh, in large part young people who are going to suffer the consequences of these very bad decisions we've made and suffer the consequences of our inability to this point to do much about it. So they're the people with most at stake, but they are very engaged. I, I am constantly impressed by how well informed a lot of them are. They show themselves to be very values driven and very insistent on living a life that is consistent with those values. So I, I think that is, a, that is a positive. Well, Green Dreamer, to learn more and stay updated on Stephen's work at Cascadia Law, you can head to www.cascadialaw.com. Stephen, is there anywhere else we can go to stay up to date on your uh, environmental litigation work, or do you have any closing cost action for us? Um, no, I think that is, uh, like I said, I'm not on social media, so it's uh, my, really my firm's website where you can find where you can find me. And uh, I really appreciate the chance to talk to you today. Of course. Thank you so much for joining us. And I'd love for you to share your uh, final words of wisdom for us as Green Dreamers. I would say do what you can. You know, honestly, I think we are facing some significant problems in uh, our impacts on the planet and our impacts on society 
uh, and our in- impacts on public health. And so uh, do what you can, meaning, you know, try to live a responsible life, uh, a, a life that recognizes that those problems are occurring, a, a, a life that minimizes your impacts that might uh, exacerbate those problems and also do something, right? I mean, so it's it's both individual action, but it is also trying to support those in positions of authority, in positions of power who have more ability than we do as, as you know, general citizens to have influence over, uh, over big decisions that might change the course that we're on. Green Dreamer, thank you so much for tuning in. I'd like to take another moment to thank our sponsor, Osea Malibu, a skincare line founded by a family of women inspired by the sea and that formulates botanical-powered products that have shown proven results for all skin concerns. To get $10 off your first purchase of $50 or more, you can head to oseamalibu.com slash greendreamer. Again, that's O-S-E-A malibu.com slash greendreamer. Oh, and if you're in the LA area, area, make sure to stop by their Osea Venice Skincare Studio for their therapeutic facials. As always, you can sign up to our weekly digest to get solutions-driven news delivered to you at greendreamer.com slash subscribe. And if you want to come say hello to let me know that you're tuning in, you can find me on Instagram at greendreamerpodcast or at Kamea Shane. As we're wrapping up here, just remember, now more than ever, our planet needs your light to thrive. So if you haven't yet, hit subscribe, and I will catch you later, Green Dreamer.